It's the summer of 2019, and the FBI, they just got a tip on their hotline about a foreign spy hidden in the middle of America's heartland. The spy in question, a professor who was pretending to work at a university in Kansas when he actually held a position at a Chinese university. And the tip spelled it out. The professor was in the U.S. on behalf of the Chinese government, feeding information back to them. After a week, another tip came in, then another, then another. One person sending in a tip had a document attached. A contract between Dr. Tao and the university in China. All of the accusations were about one person, Dr. Fang Franklin Tao. Dr. Tao was born in China, but he moved to the U.S. in 2002 to study chemistry. Four years ago, he got a gig at the University of Kansas as a tenured professor in a lab. Dr. Tao conducts what's called fundamental or basic research for the University of Kansas. This is Michael Derrington. He's a lawyer at the firm Errant Fox Schiff, which represents Dr. Tao. What's interesting about basic or fundamental research is that unlike applied science, it has no practical application. It's what researchers often say, it's science for science's sake. It's the pursuit of curiosities in science and theory. When Tao took the job, he moved his entire life, including his wife and two sons, to Lawrence, Kansas. And now, the FBI was investigating him. If he was a spy, like the tip said, his case would fall under the new controversial national security program the China Initiative. In the eyes of the U.S. government and the University of Kansas, Dr. Tao went from a lauded and dedicated chemistry professor to a possible enemy of the state. They feared they had a spy, a true informant on their hands. But would the evidence actually support that? I'm Alzo Slade. From Something Else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask the question... Is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, targeted by the state, the story of the first investigation under a controversial national security program. To understand how Dr. Tao became the focus of an FBI investigation, we gotta rewind a bit to November of 2018 during the Trump administration. Then Attorney General Jeff Sessions made a special announcement. I am announcing that I have ordered the creation of a China initiative. Sessions stands at the podium. There's a half circle of various DOJ and FBI guys behind him. You know the scene, all those people standing around the person speaking, and you have no idea who they are or why they're there. This initiative will identify a priority trade theft cases. Sessions says that the government wants to commit resources to investigating trade theft cases for instances of economic espionage, especially the ones that involve China. So I guess economic espionage is different from your regular old espionage. I mean, there was already a law about it passed in Congress in the late 90s. The law made it illegal to steal trade secrets or any intellectual property for the benefit of a foreign government. 
Today we see Chinese espionage not just taking place against traditional targets like our defense and intelligence agencies, but against targets like research labs, universities, and we see Chinese propaganda disseminated on our campuses. Wait, universities? It's interesting because the FBI and Justice Department had a focus on Chinese American scientists. This is Mike German, former FBI special agent. Now he's a fellow at the Brennan Center with a focus on national security. He said that the FBI had been looking into Chinese American scientists for decades as part of their efforts to protect American intellectual property. But what the China Initiative did was add fuel to that fire. One of the goals of the China Initiative was to make it easier to open these investigations. Basically, what it did was move the nexus for an agent starting an investigation from trying to target economic espionage, which is defined as government efforts to steal intellectual property, to finding somebody with a nexus to China. And then it could fit under this umbrella, regardless of what the ultimate charges were. So now all you needed is someone with a nexus to China to start an investigation. That could mean anyone who had some type of association or connection to China. So it created an incentive to target Chinese Americans in a way that it wouldn't have if the initiative wasn't formally announced. A few months after the announcement, the feds had one of their first suspects, Dr. Franklin Tao at the University of Kansas. The FBI sprung into action. This is what the initiative was all about, tracking down spies, hiding in plain sight on university campuses. They started surveilling Dr. Tao, including getting a warrant to search his email. The FBI also chased down anyone who left a tip on the hotline. Pretty quickly, it became clear that almost all of those tips had come from the same person, a visiting scholar who had spent three weeks in Tao's lab in 2018, right around the time when the China Initiative had launched. Here's Michael Derrington again. If you look as we did and take a close study of the emails that were coming in, there were these indicators that this was all one person. I mean, this didn't take uh, particularly intense sleuthing. In one email, the visiting scholar accidentally signed her own name at the bottom of one of the emails. When she talked to the FBI, she claimed to have proof that Tao was engaging in espionage, a contract between Dr. Tao and a university in China. Evidence. But it was unsigned. No one could find a signed copy anywhere. There was an addendum that had Tao's signature on it, asking for more things, but the university never signed that. The informant told the FBI she got it from Tao's secretary in China. And then she later said that she actually hacked Dr. Tao's email account to obtain the contract. The FBI found out some other key information. As it turns out, this visiting scholar was pretty frustrated with Dr. Tao. He had published some research, and she thought she should have been credited. The visiting scholar claimed that she thought that she should get more credit than she was given in a particular paper that Dr. Tao had published in a research journal. The FBI saw email exchanges between the visiting scholar and Dr. Tao. After he explained to her why he decided whose names went on what papers, this scholar took a much more aggressive approach. And so she threatened him. 
She actually threatened him in writing. See, here's the things, folks. A lot of people issue empty threats. If I was going to threaten someone, I could send it in writing because I don't intend to actually do it. But if you know you're going to follow through on a threat and probably break the law doing it, hmm, you might not want to write it down so posterity can see that you planned it in the first place. I mean, that's extortion 101. Crime TV shows teach us that. She said that if you don't give me the proper credit, to which I think I'm deserving, or you don't pay me roughly $300,000, then I'm going to falsely report you as a tech spy. She even told him why she chose the term tech spy. She said something to the effect of, I hear that's something of interest to the FBI these days. And the next thing that happened is the visiting scholar, as we were able to determine during our investigation, created multiple aliases, pretending to be people who had worked in the lab at KU, and then made reports to the FBI and to KU, falsely accusing Dr. Tao of being a spy. So the scholar who had given the FBI Tao's unsigned contract with the Chinese university as proof of espionage, had also threatened, harassed, and attempted to extort Tao. And all before flooding the FBI hotline with accusations against him. She had admitted to the FBI that she had made misstatements to them in order to get the government to start investigating Dr. Tao. All right, boom. Case closed. She lied. And she was their only informant. So why not just drop the case immediately? But nope, that didn't happen. And why? You'll find out after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Franklin Tao was actually the first person arrested that we know of under China Initiative. This is Han Zhang. She's a contributor at The New Yorker. When she spoke to Dr. Tao and his wife, Hong Peng, they told her that they didn't take the visiting scholars' threats that seriously at first. I mean, who would? It really sounds like it's out of a movie, except the stakes aren't even high enough for a movie. What is it, like? Give me my paper credit or I'll report you? Nah, they truly had no idea that this issue with the visiting scholar would spiral out of control. They did not foresee this will develop into something this big and basically, you know, 
changed their life, not only the two of them, but also their two teenage twins. Han Jung also worked with another New Yorker writer, Gideon Lewis Krauss, on a story about Dr. Tao's case. From this and from other reading, I learned that sometimes FBI agents treat Chinese subjects with so much suspicion that they would say, like, when they were searching Franklin's house, they see something with Chinese writing on it, and it was just like a trinket from a well-known Chinese university. But because it is in Chinese, they were looking at them more intensely. The FBI didn't just search Dr. Tao's house and emails. They looked over his bank accounts. They also interviewed his friends, family, and fellow church members. They were looking into his case, thinking that he is a spy, as in like, you know, he is transferring something that's actually considered sensitive and have something to do with national interest. And then the case became, at some point, a fraud case. He was actually charged with uh, wire fraud. So after all that investigation, federal agents arrested Dr. Tao. But he wasn't being accused of stealing secrets or sharing sensitive information. Nope. In fact, there were no espionage charges. They were charging him with wire fraud and making false statements. And after that, it's like overnight, his life changed. Suddenly, this dude was a pariah. The university put him on unpaid leave, shut his lab down, and banned him from university grounds. He was even forced to wear an ankle monitor. And all of this for wire fraud? Now, look, I'm not trying to say that these charges aren't important. I mean, on this podcast, we see a lot of people get charged with wire fraud. But it's kind of a catch-all for wrongdoers, like when the government is trying to get someone for doing something really bad, but there aren't a lot of laws for it, like adoption fraud. Or if the government thinks the person did something, but they can't prove it, So instead, they use a lower charge like wire fraud and try to prove that. Well, it's March of 2022. Dr. Tao and his lawyers gather in a courtroom in Missouri City, Kansas. Dr. Tao was facing six counts of wire fraud and two counts of making false statements to a federal agency. The theory there was that Dr. Tao, in some fashion, should have disclosed to the University of Kansas and these agencies that he allegedly took a second job in China or had some affiliation with a second university in China, and that that would have been material to KU's decision to continue employing him and the agency's decision to continue funding research at KU that he worked on. In opening arguments, the prosecutors laid out their case. They believed Dr. Tao had taken a second job at a university in China but still had a job at an American university and was accepting U.S. federal funding. They pointed to Dr. Tao's frequent trips to China and to the research he collaborated on with the university years earlier. Then they pointed to the unsigned contract between Dr. Tao and the university. What was that about? Well, in 2018, Tao had applied for and won an extremely prestigious award issued by the Chinese government. The award would have required him to teach and run a research lab at the university in China. Dr. Tao had an opportunity to work in China, and he strongly considered it. I mean, think about it. You're slogging away at your job, 
and then someone reaches out to you about a new opportunity. Most of us, we take the phone call, hear about the offer, even if it's just to say, nah, thanks. Or you may even try to use it as leverage at your current job. Hey, hey guys, somebody else wants me. What are you going to do to keep me? So the defense argued that Dr. Tao did what anyone would do. He looked into the offer, asked what equipment would be in the lab, and which students he could recruit. He went to China to see how he'd feel about moving back. And then, after sussing it all out, he and his family decided, no, they didn't want to move. they just stay in Kansas. He spent some time in China in 2018 and 2019, but ultimately he came back to the University of Kansas to teach full-time in the fall of 2019, just before he was arrested. So he never gave up his job at KU. He never accepted or signed a contract to work for the university in China, even though he had the opportunity to do so. And there was never any evidence he ever taught or had any grant work in China. In the courtroom, prosecutors argued that all of this means that he was just hiding something, that he was trying to keep the award and the potential job offer a secret. The government believed that when Dr. Tao had gotten that offer, he should have filled out a conflict of interest form and submitted it to the university. And if he was going to do the work for the Chinese university without disclosing it, he was committing fraud. I mean, come on, we stretch it now, right? Like, how many of you are going to tell your boss that you're interviewing for a new job? Probably not many of us. It's the type of paperwork violation that typically arises in human resources type cases, or even at most, you would think, in an administrative case brought by the Office of Inspector General of a particular agency, and at least investigated at that point rather than simply charged. But the defense said there was one problem with it. Dr. Tao had never accepted the job offer. No money exchanged hands. So that meant there was nothing that he was meant to disclose, given the rules at the time. The defense also made another argument. In order to defraud the university, there would also have to be proof that Tao failed to deliver on his end of the bargain, that he was taking in all of that salary and federal funding and in exchange was not delivering on the goods. But when they called witnesses, they found his program officer at DOE testified that she was satisfied. DOE was satisfied with the work. Okay, so the Department of Education, which was giving Tao his federal funding, they were happy with his work. What about Kansas University, though? The place he was apparently two-timing. Dr. Tao had received one of the most prestigious awards in 2019 for his work at KU. The Chancellor University Scholarly Achievement Award. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds hell of important. He was one of four professors to get it. The award recognizes folks for their truly outstanding scholarly or research contribution. Over the course of the trial, 30 different witnesses were called, and the jury poured over 395 exhibits. The federal jury came to a conclusion. Well, kind of. At trial, there was a split verdict. He was found guilty on four counts, three counts of wire fraud and one count of making a false statement. But he was found not guilty of the four other counts. It's possible the judge wasn't as convinced by the government's evidence. More on that after the break. 
the judge declined to set a sentencing date and asked the lawyers to file new motions. Tao's lawyers are currently trying to get the charges dismissed. It's very unlucky here because he was the first professor. He was the blueprint case for these academic integrity prosecutions under the guise of the China Initiative. And we've had cases since then where we've gotten the, the charges dismissed. Tao just happened to be the first of many Chinese-born academics at American universities to be investigated under this new mantle of the China Initiative. But most of those investigations were scrapped. The few defendants that wound up in court were acquitted. Not Tao, though. And get this, by the time Dr. Tao's trial came up in 2022, the China Initiative, the thing that had justified opening this investigation in the first place, based on Dr. Tao's ties to China, this thing had already been canceled. So I want to take the opportunity today to discuss our approach to nation-state threats overall and to also address the China Initiative directly. This is Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Matt Olson giving a speech at the end of February. We have heard concerns from the civil rights community that the China Initiative has fueled a narrative of intolerance and bias. And in the mix of this long speech, he declares he's ending the initiative. We have heard that those prosecutions and the public narrative around those cases can lead to a chilling atmosphere for scientists and scholars that damages the scientific enterprise in the United States. The initiative was canceled even before Dr. Tao went to trial. So, of course, his lawyers filed a motion to drop the case. But they still took this dude to court. I think, like, justice is not something that is handed to you or promised. And, you know, people may think, oh, this is America. But there are too many victims. I think that's very lively in the public imagination that proves justice is not a given and you have to fight for it. And I think... That's what the family, the legal team, have been doing. Yeah, there's a long history in America of getting neighbors to snitch on neighbors. Because there's always someone new to point the finger at and scapegoat. To turn someone into a them so there can be an us. I think Franklin Tao's case and also the larger China initiative kind of crystallized how, you know, Chinese people's rights are in jeopardy in this political environment. For anyone who wants to come study and work in America, this will make them think twice about it. I mean, who wants to work and live with the fear that they might be targeted next? Even though the initiative is over, the sentiment is still going strong. From the lawyers I spoke with, they were still getting new cases. New people are being investigated since the end, the official end of the initiative. So that is also not encouraging. There are other consequences, too. This whole don't trust your neighbor mentality, it sort of runs against the whole idea of research, of collaboration, of inquiry and discovery. Basically, the world that Dr. Tao actually works in. So, what does that say about America? I can sense a kind of bitterness and betrayal of the treatment they received as immigrants who puts, I mean, and Hong Kong and the children are American citizens. So much hope and confidence they placed in this place. There's this essentialist idea of what an American is. And even though Dr. Tao came to this country and his family are U.S. citizens, 
To some people, they're still seen as outsiders. Let's take a look at this China initiative. It was flawed from the beginning, seemingly xenophobic itself. But it was supposed to be looking into spies, right? There was no evidence to prove that Dr. Tao was a spy. But they found something on him, which was also questionable, after the initiative was over. And when you look at it from a perspective of just living your life, and all of a sudden, a decision that someone makes because they don't feel acknowledged can trigger the government to bring their wrath down upon you and your family? That's powerfully scary and bullshit at the same time. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. If, if someone had said to you, there's somebody out there who's match fixing regularly, have a guess who it is. You'd have, you'd have gone through dozens, possibly hundreds of players before you went anti-crunch. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Production help from Megan Dietrich. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>